Well, we began, I think it was six or seven weeks ago in the book of Philippians and we took a break for Christmas and then we preached on biblical sexuality and now we are returning back to this great book. It is really worth our time. We're going to slow down. We've been, we've been going through Paul's prayer in this initial opening section and we're gonna slow down still in the weeks ahead as we look at this because we see a couple of things in the prayers of Paul. It always makes sense to read carefully. Remember, nothing that's written in the Bible was just thrown out. Um, There's nothing superfluous about this. There's nothing that is casual. Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is recording this prayer uh, for a reason. We need to understand, first of all, that that this, this prayer teaches us the kinds of things that Paul prayed for, the things that he prioritized in the Christian life. And we also learn from these prayers how to pray ourselves. They are lessons really in prayer. And so Paul is writing out this prayer for the Philippians. He's letting them know the kinds of things that he was praying for them. And as he does this, he's doing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that it it serves as a framework for our own praying. Prayer, Paul's prayers, when we read them, are so distinct, so different than many of our own. And we've talked about the breadth of prayer and that there are all kinds of subject matters that can be taken to God, and prayer can look very different at different times. But one thing we should do when we come to prayers like this is be thinking ourselves and evaluating our own prayers and considering How is it that I pray? What is it that Paul prays for? How are these things distinct from the way that I pray? And how could I add this kind of thing to my praying? Serves as a framework, really. These prayers teach us how God wants us to pray, at least in part. And prayer, in, in, in one way, has been said, is as natural to a, to a Christian as breathing. You can't even become a Christian apart from talking to God, right? You've got to seek the salvation that he is willing to give to all who, who trust him in faith and repentance. But prayer also, so, so it is a compulsion, but prayer also is a discipline. Prayer is something that is learned. You remember Jesus' disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. We should come to this text saying the same thing. Lord, teach us to pray. Help us to evaluate our own praying. Sharpen it. Teach us to pray for the things that are transcendent and eternal and not just the things of earth. So we started in chapter 1 and verse 1. It's always a good place to start when you study the Bible. And Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in this salutation these precious truths. We see our identity as Christians, as those who are slaves and saints simultaneously. We see God's posture toward us, that he is is one who has a posture of grace toward us and peace. Then we looked at verses three to eight where we began to read Paul's praying, about Paul's praying. And the Apostle Paul gives the Philippians a description of the way that he prays. It's super encouraging, as we said, to be prayed for, but how much more to know specifically how somebody is praying for you. Paul begins to articulate that as a demonstration of his love for these people. He wants them to know that he loves them and that he prays for them and how he prays for them. He prayed for them with with a certain posture, a certain spirit, and it it just bleeds through the text as, as we read. He begins by expressing his gratitude for them, his love and affection for them. Take a look. We'll look at verse three. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, 
since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you, are, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ. And we, we looked at this text and we pointed out really three characteristics of Paul's praying, sort of foundational things. We noted that Christians pray. They don't just say prayers. We don't go through prayer as if it was some kind of religious rite. No, Paul here is involved deeply and personally with these people. He's not playing around at prayer. He is vested in them. He's committed to them. Note that Paul bowed before his God. It was very personal. He was praying, interceding on their behalf. He had God on one hand and the Philippians on the other, and he was seeking to bring the two of them together in his prayers and see God act on behalf of the Philippians and praise God for all that he had done on the Philippians' behalf. He prays for them because they are in his heart, and he loved them with the affection of Christ with all sincerity. Again, friends, how far we fall short of this sort of thing. Paul was vested in it, so his prayers were deeply personal. But secondly, Paul's prayer was consistently thankful. That, that bleeds through this text. He says that at every remembrance of them, every time he thought of them, every prayer that he offered for them, for all of them, he prayed and he prayed with gratitude to God which was the custom of Paul in all of his epistles. He, well, nearly all of them, he begins with an expression of gratitude for obvious reasons. The Philippians were Christians because what? Because God had saved them. The Philippians were growing in their faith. Why? Because God had saved them and he's the one who causes the growth. The Philippians are in, in need of abundant love so Paul looks heavenward. He, he, he asks the God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think for the needs of the Philippians. You remember that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 16 that we should pray without ceasing and in everything we should give thanks because this is God's will for you. You see, thanksgiving puts us in a posture of humility, doesn't it? It puts us in a posture of recognizing that we deserve nothing, but God is gracious to give us everything in Christ. So why wouldn't we be grateful? Paul modeled this very thing. He has gratitude right at the front gate of his prayers. So his prayers were deeply personal, consistently thankful, and thirdly, they were dominantly spiritual, and we're going to continue in this vein as we develop today's text. What dominated the horizons of Paul's prayers were not the material and physical things that so much of our prayers are, 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 are consumed with, but instead he is praying for things that are spiritual and eternal. And as I said to you before, it's not wrong to pray for material things or earthly needs, but at the same time, there is a greater and, can I say, higher work of prayer that, that seeks God's will and God's kingdom and the establishment of spiritual graces in the life of his people. Paul is thankful for their sacrificial participation in the gospel ministry. Paul is thankful for the work of God in their lives. Paul is thankful for the fellowship that they share in the grace of salvation. And so Paul is not focused so much on temporal things, physical maladies, even his own suffering as he writes from prison. Instead, he is fixed and focused on these Philippians and on their spiritual progress. He's fixed on eternal realities and matters of the kingdom, their sanctification, the glory of God's grace, the return of Christ, the completion of their conformity to the likeness of Christ. These are the things that consume Paul's praying. And we're going to see that this spiritual priority in prayer continues as we come to verses 9 to 11 this morning. This will serve as our text, and really we won't get out of verse 9, and Lord willing, we'll take up verses 10 and 11 next week. By the Spirit, Paul writes, and this I pray, he gets down to brass tacks here. You want to know specifically what I'm asking God for? That your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge 
and all discernment so that you may approve of the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Father, again, these words are not a mistake. They're in the scripture that we might be edified, built up, that we might learn how to pray, that we might be reminded again of what your will is for us in Christ Jesus. And I ask, Lord, that as we consider these things, that you would strengthen what is weak, that you would make clear what is cloudy, that, Lord, you would, by your Spirit, convict us in areas where we need to grow. And ultimately, Lord, that just as Paul prayed for the Philippians, so I pray for us as a flock, as your flock, that we would learn to abound in love, that if people were to walk into this place, the one thing that would be evident above all would be our deep love for one another, pointing to our deep love for you. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So this is Paul's petition. He bows his knee on behalf of the Philippians, and he wants to see their growth and their maturity and their spiritual progress in the church, and I don't know if you thought about it, but how would you evaluate the strength and the progress, the maturity of a church? Paul wants those things for this church, that they would grow in, in love, certainly. He prays these kinds of prayers throughout his epistles, that, that the church would grow in knowledge and power and wisdom in endurance, in love and joy and faith and goodness and godliness. These are the things that surface when you examine Paul's prayers. This is what was on his heart for Christ's church. We know that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks, and when Paul bowed to pray, these were the things that he was burdened to pray for on behalf of the church. Do you pray that way for the church? Are these the things that you're seeking for your life? Are these the things you're praying for your children in addition to praying for their salvation, that they would grow in these, these distinctives that, that come, if you will, with the, the hard drive of, of, of salvation? All of these things are present in the life of a believer and all of these things also need to be growing in the life of a believer and in the life of a church. It's a good question to ask. How are we doing in these things? He lets the Philippians in on the substance of his heartfelt prayers for them, and he prays in verses 9 to 11 for a number of Christian virtues that they would grow and flourish in the Philippian church. Look at what headlines the list. Verse 9, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. This is the priority of Paul's prayer. Abundant love. That the church would be increasing continually, still more and more, characterized by a burgeoning love in their midst. They hadn't arrived. And he wants to see more of it. And this shouldn't surprise us at all. Because love crowds the pages of Paul's epistles. It's, it's stunning, really, to start looking through and see how often love shows up in the Scriptures at large, but particularly in the writings of Paul and of John. Peter as well. Listen to some of the introduc introductory paragraphs of a few of Paul's epistles. Listen to the consistency of the themes. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 1 of his first epistle, Verses two and three, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. All right, Paul, what do you mention? He says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of your hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses Three to four, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. 
to the Ephesians, a letter we looked at not long ago. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you. And then he prays that they might know what is the hope of his calling. Colossians 1, 3 to 6, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Now, if you take those prayers, you can come to the conclusion, well, that, that Paul's just got some little you know, sort of stylistic way that he likes to write his letters, and this, this is just some of the verbiage you gotta get through to really get to the content of the letter. I'm telling you, that is not the case. What you should derive from this is that Paul consciously thinks about what he wants, thinks about the things that God has accomplished in the lives of his people, and he exults in God for that work. And he's mindful in particularly about faith and hope and love. You see, Paul is not just casting random thoughts heavenward. He's thought about this. He's intentional. He prays specifically. He's very ordered and structured. He's got an aim and a target. He knows what he wants from God because he knows what God wants to accomplish in the lives of his people. You see, in all these introductory passages, Paul thanks God for essentially the same thing. And what also is clear in this is that the priority in, um, among these virtues of faith, hope, and love is certainly love. To the Colossians, he says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You'll remember the closing of 1 Corinthians 13, 13. But now faith, hope, love, abide these things, but the greatest of these is love, right? This is the clear priority of Paul for the Philippians, that their love would flourish, that God's love really would flourish in their midst. It's the great distinguishing virtue for the church. It is that thing which most clearly points to the reality that we are rightly related to God because his life and his love within us is expressed outwardly toward one another so that when people see the love that we have for one another, what's the conclusion they come to? They're disciples of Christ. Jesus said that, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And beloved, it, it, it's easy to say, well, you know, I've, I've heard a thousand sermons on love. I get this. Do we? I want to encourage you yet again. You see all those one another commandments in Scripture, and one thing that's patently clear as you begin to, to, to look through them is you understand that these are the things that come into play in the midst of hardship and conflict and friction. And what do you do when there is friction with a brother in Christ? You bear with them. You consider him as better than yourself. You forgive him in Christ, just as Christ has forgiven you. You, you love him fervently and from the heart. All of these are commandments that we are given in Scripture to love. And yet the church, time and time again, not our church, Thank the Lord for that, in recent days at least. But, but there ought to be this glue in our midst that it is, it's almost inextricable. And it's not because of some external compulsion that, 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 that ties us together. It's not because you've signed on a piece of paper. It's not because you've made a membership vow. But it is because of an internal compulsion to rise at the moment of need and to die to yourself and to care for your brother and sister in Christ. It's because we understand that love is that perfect bond of unity when the going gets tough. It's so easy for us to fall back into thinking about this again in essentially sentimental and emotional terms. 
That is not what the Bible is talking about when it speaks about this kind of love that the believer has for the believer, even though that is experienced among us emotionally, isn't it? We feel for one another deeply. But that's not the foundation of it. What can we say about this love that Paul speaks of here in his prayers? I want to give you four characteristics today of Christian love, the kind of love that that God intends to, to, to permeate us as a people. Four characteristics of Christian love. The first one is this. Understand that what Paul is praying for here is supernatural. It is God's love. It's God's love. He's not looking at the Philippians and saying, hey, you guys stir this thing up, work harder at it. What he is saying is, Lord, these people are in need of something that they cannot in their own strength accomplish. That's why he prays for it. Look back at verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. Beloved, understand this, that love, Christian love, the kind of love that's being spoken of here is a love that comes from God. There's nothing natural in it. This is evident by the simple fact that Paul is praying for it. He's asking God to give to the Philippians according to his own nature. You think about the passages that I just gave you and and continually it said we give thanks to God for you because it's fitting and because we can't cease giving thanks. Why? Because it's God who is manifesting faith and hope and love in their midst. And so here Paul looks up and says, Lord, I pray that their love might, might grow. It tells us something that Paul is praying for them. And with all due respect to the, to the Nike slogan, we cannot just do it. You can't gin up this kind of thing. That kind of love that can be ginned up at a human level is in, entirely too flimsy for the kind of thing that Paul is praying would be in their midst here. And so as you, as you listen to Paul praying here for their, their love, you, will, along with the Philippians, should be feeling your own helplessness, your own need to be able to love in a way that, that really is not within your grasp. Listen to one commentator. The, the love spoken here is the love that God is. Produced in the heart of a believer by the Holy Spirit, I love this. The divine love is an exotic flower from heaven planted in the foreign soil of the believer's heart. It's an exotic flower from heaven planted in the foreign soil of the believer's heart. You see, this is not a natural love. This is nothing you could could purchase a book on to learn. This is nothing that attending a seminar is going to to give you. This is something that Paul has to, to pray for on the Philippians' behalf. It's supernatural. God is the source of this love. He is the storehouse. He is the one who pours out this kind of love in the hearts of his people. And that is the clear teaching of Scripture. Love is one of the unmistakable birthmarks of a genuine believer. It is an unmistakable birthmark. Let's just look at a few passages. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to move relatively quickly through this, but I want this to be anchored in your mind. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now that was the corrupt teaching of the Pharisees. That you should love your fellow Jew, but you really need no concern for Gentiles or anyone else who is not a Jew. Jesus corrects that teaching when he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, it should be plain as day, right, that this commandment 
tells us something about the nature of the kind of love that Paul is talking about because it would be impossible if what we're talking about in love is, is, is first and foremost warmth of affection and this overwhelming, consuming desire to do kind things to people. If it started at the level of emotion, how do you love an enemy and a persecutor? But you see, it doesn't begin there. We'll come back to that. Look at what he says in verse 45. He says, when you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you, he says you do that so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, by loving enemies and by praying for persecutors, you demonstrate that you are in fact a child of God. so that you may be sons of your father. You may prove that out, that you have divine lineage in coming from God. You have, you have the life of God, your father, within you by the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to describe what God is like. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you have love for those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax gatherers do the same? It's no big deal to love people who love you back. That's not how we distinguish agape love. If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Everybody greets those who are like them. Everybody greets those who are related to them, the people that they like. Even the Gentiles, the non-Christians do that. He says, no, your love is to be of a much higher nature. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, the very character of our love for one another, the very character of your love for your neighbor, the very character of your love for your wife, the very character of your love for your children, the very character of your love for, for, for mankind, it's very uncommon. It's very otherworldly. And it's a demonstration of the life of God within you. Because nobody loves like that. Who does that? Who lays his life down for his friends? Right? Romans 5.5, 5. how did this happen? How do we get this love? You don't need to turn there, I'm just gonna read these to you. Romans 5.5, 5. the love of God has been, the love of who? The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's because that spirit is within you that you get the package of God's love. You, you are taught how to love by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the spirit is what? what? What headlines the list again? It's love. It's love. It's the very first thing listed as evidence that the Spirit of God is in your life is that you have a love that you did not come up with on your own. It came from God by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Turn over to 1 John and chapter three. And we'll take a look right at the very first verse. Many of you memorized the song a long time ago, probably in the, actually I didn't look it up, it might be in the King James Revised Standard, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, right? What does he mean, behold what manner? Take a look at the kind of love that is manifested in your heart and in your life. Consider the love that came to you from God and is now working out of you through the Holy Spirit. Behold that manner of love that was given unto us. What? What does it prove? That we should be the sons or the children, as Nasby puts it, of God. And I love this. John says, and such we are. That is an amazing thing. That is an amazing thing. How did I ever become a son of God? And why would he care enough to manifest his character in me? I don't know, but I'm thankful. Such I am. Rejoice in that. Write it on your fridge. Such you are. That's great stuff. Look at verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. There are only two lineages in this life. You're either of God or you're of the devil. 
You're a child of one or the other. And he says, it's obvious. It's not difficult to tell the difference between the two. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Beloved, it's a massive issue to not have love for your brother in Christ. He says, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Again, this is old stuff, but it's no trouble for me to remind you of it. Look down to verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How do you know that? Because we love the brethren. There's a love for the church. There's a love for your brother in Christ. You long to be with them. You care about them. You want to serve them. They're a treasure to you. He who does not abide, uh, who does not love, abides in death. Meaning here that you don't know the life that you, you can have in Christ. This is why it is so distressing as shepherds of the church when, when people can exist on the periphery and really kind of know nobody and, and not really engage with anybody and we sort of attend on Sunday mornings semi-regularly, but by and large, we don't really have relationships with anybody in the church. Beloved, that is a dangerous place to live. God has placed something in you that should draw you tight into relationship here with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verse 18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Love is active. We know by this, we will know by this that we are of the truth. And look at this, we will assure our heart before him. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart, and God knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And he's writing that in the, confident, in the, in the context again of love. You see, love coming out of you is an evidence of Jesus within you. That's why Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians, what? Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not know this, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? You wanna know if you're in Christ? Look for the character of Christ being worked out in your life. No, not perfectly, but it should be there. Christ loves his people. Christ loves the church. Christ shed his blood for the church. How can we live sort of loosely related to it, taking a little bit here and a little bit there and maybe this piece that I like and that program that pleases me? Now, this is about a whole heart commitment to a group of people that we love earnestly from the heart. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. See, the same point is being made over again, and he is driving at home. And by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us. If he loved us in that way, this is akin to what he says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. What's he saying? Again, that's not an emotional statement. He's saying, for God in this way loved the world. How did he do it? He sent his only son into this world that he might be the sin bearer for all who would repent and trust in Christ for salvation. That's a very active objective demonstration of the love of God, isn't it? You don't, you don't have to wonder, uh, does God feel for me? You can just look to the cross and know that his love is full for you. So full that he acted on your behalf to give his only son in your place to bear your sins as a perfect substitute. That's love. John says we've been loved like that, we should love like that. Verse 20 says, if someone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
And this is the commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Beloved, the loveless life, the self-centered life, is a godless life. And when Christ settles into our heart, he turns on the light of love where previously there was just darkness and self-centeredness. And he turns that all around. I want you to look at one last passage. There's one other statement that I want you to see. It's in 1 Thessalonians in chapter four. Remember, we're making the point here that love comes from God. Love comes from God to his people. It must be there if you're a Christian. First Thessalonians in chapter four, look at verse nine. Notice that he just made a mention of God giving the Holy Spirit to the church in verse eight. And he says in verse nine, now as to the love of the brethren, as to, as to loving one another, as to love in the church, he says, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. God is our tutor in love. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. So it doesn't stop at the four walls of this church, right? We have a love for Christ's people everywhere. And then he says to them, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And that brings us to the second characteristic of Christian love. Not only is our love from God, but it is a growing love. It is God's love and it is a growing love. Paul again, back in Philippians, says, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. And the first point that should be made here, obviously, as I've already said, is that the Philippians already did have God's love in their heart. He's not saying, Lord, I pray that you'd make them loving people. He's saying, Lord, I pray that you would take the love that you've already placed in their life and that it would just burgeon, that it would grow and grow and grow and abound all the more. You see, this love of God that's been implanted, this seed in your soul must constantly keep growing and growing and bearing fruit. That's one of the signs that something is alive, right? It grows. It gets bigger. That's evidence that your children are alive if they're growing, if they're getting heavier, if they're getting taller. So it is with your love. Susie and I moved into a home that had some small trees and we also planted some others. And we've been there now since 1994 and these trees have gotten almost imperceptibly to us taller and taller and, and wider and wider and they now cast shade over much of the house. That's what Paul is praying for, these Philippians. That is what God wants in your life, beloved, that as a Christian or as a congregation that we would be deeply rooted in the soil of Christ's love and that we would grow tall and broad and strong Listen to these sweeping statements. Again, I'm just cherry-picking here. Romans 13, 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. I mean, if you want to boil it all down, love one another. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Let all that you do, everything, be done in love. I gave this verse to you earlier out of Colossians 3. But, but listen to it in context. He says, so as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bear with one another, forgive one another, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. I mean, those are, those are big substantial things that Paul wants to direct the church to, to follow. But he says, you know, if I had to boil it all down, he says, beyond all these things, Put on love because it is the perfect bond of unity. You heard 1 Corinthians 13 earlier. If we do not have love, we have what? Nothing. Nothing. Whatever else it is that you're concerned about, if it doesn't start here, 
it, it, it amounts to a sounding gong. There's such an emphasis in Scripture on this, and I know you know that, but I'm going to remind you of it again. Brothers and sisters, are we asking the question, is this kind of love evident in my life? Is it growing? Or have I sort of grown cold and distant, and I don't do the things I used to do? You remember we looked at at Revelation and, and the church at Ephesus that stopped being characterized by those loving actions that that used to characterize them. This is what Paul's praying for: that this kind of love would permeate the church. And I love the language of it. It really speaks of surplus or overflow. I I was envisioning a a river rising and rising and rising and rising, rain coming and, and rising still further until it began to overflow its banks. Spilling over. You you just cannot have too much love in the church. You're never going to be able to outdo one another in this to such an extent that we finally have to say to you, as, as Moses did to the people of Israel, enough. We've got enough. Knock it off. We need some conflict. We need some people leaving. We need some angry attitudes. We need some selfishness. No. No. You're never in danger of excess. And this river of love, if you will, that that is already present in the Philippians' lives by virtue of their relationship with Christ, he's saying, I want it to just go over its banks. I want it to be lavish. And when I think of the overflow of a river, I'm not so much thinking in our context here where that overflow oftentimes takes houses away and destroys people's lives. I'm thinking more in terms of like the Nile River which overflows every year and what does it do? It brings nutrients and soil into the farmland and into the valleys so that that now stuff will grow and it's green and it's lush. We want to be a church with all the nutrients of love and the water of love that that nourishes us so that we produce a crop that's pleasing to God. See, it's not the size of your congregation. It's not the number of your programs. It is not the quality of your coffee. None of those things amount to a hill of beans. It's all about this. It's the abundance of love in your midst. I really believe that this is the distinctive mark of a mature church. It is not just the knowledge in their head as Charles prayed earlier. Knowledge does what? Puffs up. It makes proud. There are plenty of obese, spiritually obese Christians sitting in pews this morning still taking in more knowledge and more doctrine and I will never fault more knowledge and more doctrine except to say that if it does not work its way from the head to the heart and out you're just gaining calories the goal of our instruction Paul says is what love from a pure heart and a good conscience That's the goal. That's the distinctive mark of a maturing church. Maturity, by definition, refers to growth toward a goal, doesn't it? That's what you're doing. You're young and you are growing in maturity toward adulthood. Adulthood physically, adulthood by way of responsibility. Well, what are we growing towards? Godliness and what is the the manifestation of God himself? For God is love. We are being conformed to the image of Christ who gave himself for our sins in the most profound act of love ever known. If you want to be like Christ, start there. Paul says, oh my God, I thank you for these people and for the perfect purpose that you are accomplishing in their lives. Let them abound in the likeness of your very nature. Let their love be your love the love that you put in them by the Holy Spirit, let them abound still more and more and more. And that brings us to our third point. Love comes first from God. Love, though it is present in the life of every believer, must grow. And thirdly, it must be a guided love. A guided love. G-U-I-D-E-D. 
guided love. You say, surely you're making stuff up for the point of alliteration. No, I'm not. Here we go, verse nine, you ready? And I, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. Note these words, circle them. In real knowledge and all discernment. In real knowledge and all discernment. And I want you to go back to our illustration again of the river overflowing its banks. And I want you to see on the, on, on the left bank, just call it knowledge, and on the right bank, call it discernment. You have all knowledge and you have real knowledge and you have all discernment. These, these are the channels, if you will, that direct love in a way that reflects and honors and glorifies God. It's not love out of control. It's not a love without definition. It is so easy for us to assume what love looks like. I see it all the time. It's so easy for us to assume what love looks like. We assume that love is intuitive. We just get it. And mothers get it in particular, right? That's the way we think about it. Our culture assumes it. Think about the messages in our culture. Love begins when you love yourself, right? That's the greatest love of all. We sent that one up the pop charts, you remember? Love is nice. That's what it is. It's being nice. It always feels good. Love always affirms a person no matter what. Love never confronts error, ever. You don't confront error. To, to, to love people is to simply coexist. Love, love would never spank a child. Love always gives money to everyone who says they're hungry. Love is nothing more than an emotional impulse. It's just this euphoric emotional attraction to someone. That's love. How do you know when you're in love? Oh, you just know it, right? You just know it. How dumb is that? That is dumb. No wonder 50% of marriages fail. Seriously, if you enter into it thinking that way, it doesn't take you long to go, you know what? I just know that I must have been wrong, right? Because, because it's way too fickle again when you look to emotion to hold you. Love is a determination. Love is an act of the will. I'm getting ahead of myself. Our world thinks that, that, that love is something that you can fall into and you can fall out of it. Our world thinks that love is lust. We speak about loving somebody and all we're talking about is sex, like love and sex are synonymous. Love is never having to say you're sorry. Great. <laughs> Beloved, here's the point. Our culture has absolutely no concept. None. <laughs> None. It's utterly nebulous. Everybody wants it. Everybody talks about it. Everybody sings it. But nobody has a clue what it means. You should leave here today understanding. And you should be dedicating yourself to a growing understanding of what love is and how it acts. Because again, God's in charge and he has revealed these things. He saw fit to define it. which is why we must consult the scripture. You wanna know what love is, you gotta to go to the Bible. You'll never figure it out, trying to figure it out. So how are you gonna understand what it is? How are you gonna grow in it? Well, it begins with knowledge. What our text calls real knowledge, according to Nasby. It's epignosis. And it means knowledge gained by experience. In other words, again, this is not mere head knowledge learned from a book. No, this is something that you actually experience as you are loved. You begin to learn what it means 
to love. We often see that with, with children as they grow to be parents. Where do, you, where do you learn all that parenting stuff? So many people go into parenting without ever having read a book. They just assume it's intuitive because, well, I was parented and that's why I'm going to pass on <laughs> the, same, uh, the same faulty information to my kids as they passed on to me, right? <laughs> and if you're fortunate enough to have great parents, like I did, if you, I, I got to make sure I'm okay and get lunch when I go home. <laughs> really, a lot of good things are passed on, and therefore it does feel a little bit intuitive. And man, this this works pretty pretty okay. But you see, we 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 all who are in Christ have been loved by God, and therefore we've been God taught how to love. This is that deep understanding. It is beyond just intelligence. It's by experience. First of all, we know the love of God which has been shed abroad in our hearts. There's no mistaking it. You now want to love people, but you also have to get that love by way of study of the Word of God. You have to grow in knowledge, particularly knowledge of the gospel and what God has done for you. That drives everything. This is how love grows. This is how how it abounds. It grows best in the light of the knowledge of the love of God and of Scripture. You can think about it this way. This knowledge would serve, if I can change metaphors, it's, it's like a fertilizer that, that stimulates love so that it is growing and it develops. You see, when you understand what God is like, when you understand who you were and what God did for you through Christ, when you grow in your understanding of the gospel, everything gets better. Your marriage gets better, your relationship with your kids gets better, everything becomes clarified. Because it's a game of imitation, isn't it? I am to love others as I've been loved. I am to forgive others as I've been forgiven. God becomes then the center point, the hub of my thinking about what it means to love. And so the better that you understand the love of God for you in Christ, the better you're going to love others and the more you're going to grow in in abounding still more and more in it. A church that is centered and steeped in the gospel is a church that is steeped in love. Paul also prays that the Philippians would grow in all discernment. All discernment. Aesthesis. We get the word aesthetic from it. It's used only here in Scripture. It means moral insight or discernment. One, one man put it this way, it is a discernment which cuts through hazy, ethical, moral matters to really size things up according to biblical morality. In other words, my friends, again, the world, love is not blind. Love is not blind. It is discerning, it's thoughtful, it's careful, it scrutinizes. It's under the control and the direction of the word of God. It's like the banks on that river. It directs your love in the way that it ought to be directed towards the things that are good. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love does not rejoice, what? In in error and in unrighteousness, but it delights in the truth. You see, Christ-like love is anything but impulsive, emotionally driven, hallmarky, unregulated passion that just spills over for a bunch of people. We always say, that guy's just, he's just got a bigger heart than everybody else. No. It isn't that soft and squishy. It's determined and it's gritty. And it really, really demonstrates its power in the midst of hardship and conflict when you're suffering for it. Paul prays for God's love, growing love, and a love that is guided by real knowledge and all discernment. And finally, our fourth distinctive, it is a giving love. We haven't really defined what the word is yet, what love is. And it's very difficult for us, isn't it, to extract ourselves from these sappy, sentimental, sensual concepts of love. But if you're going to do it, you've got to begin here with a definition so that you, you begin to grasp this and, and you're able to filter through and understand what is love and what isn't. And here, I, I'm, I'm just going to give you a few tidbits. We're running short on time. Start here. Love is not a feeling. 
at its foundation. It may be attended by a feeling, but foundationally it is an act of the will. It's a decision. It is a decision, it's a determination to do good to another person despite the cost to me. No matter my feelings, no matter my finances, if I can rise to meet the need, my heart is motivated to do it. I make a decisive act of the will to serve others despite personal cost. It's not sentimental at its core. It's sacrificial and it is selfless. I'll give you just a couple of definitions from some commentators. Love is, quote, concern for and action to bring about. Again, it's not just in tongue, but it's in deed. Concern for and action to bring about the welfare of another. That's what agape love is. Agape is, quote, not predominantly emotion that you feel inside, but a desire, a commitment, and an action to seek what is good for someone else, regardless of personal cost. I like this one best, actually, because it, it includes the issue of a heart affection. He says, love, agape love, is a quote, a genuine heart affection for our siblings in Christ. So he's talking here about love within the church. It is a genuine heart affection for our siblings in Christ that expresses itself in concrete acts of life-giving service. No one wants to live in a world where, where there isn't heart affection behind it. Didn't Paul just say to the Philippians, I have the affection of Christ for all of you. I, am, I love you like Christ does. My heart is swelling with love for you. That is a wonderful reality. But again, the point is, it's not grounded on that. I'm not waiting for an emotion before I can act. This is why Jesus says, look, Greater love is no one than this than he laid down his life for his friends. That's, that's, that's agape. It is the highest and most notable loves. It is a love that has the highest good of another at heart no matter the personal cost. It's not impulsive. It's not drawn by desire in the object that is loved. It doesn't go after. I, I say this to married couples all the time. You, you, you get confused about this love thing because you, you come to your marriage, what? Looking at your wife saying to yourself, man, she is the most beautiful, glorious woman I've ever seen in my life. Everybody enters into love like that. Everybody enters into marriage like that stirred up and just so, whoa. But there comes a day, right, that that love won't deliver the day. The love that delivers the day is not drawn by the beauty of, of the thing beloved. It's drawn by the need. It's drawn by a desire to love that, if you think about Christ, Love that which is unlovely. I like to put it simply this way. It, it, is, it is a willingness to give, a willingness to incur cost on behalf of another for their good. Flip over to Romans 5. As I've told you before, and a, a dear friend of mine sent me a card with these words, love does not, love does not what? <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> love gives, it does not get. Right, that, that, that's the thing. It is not in pursuit of getting anything. It is simply bound up in giving. Listen to the language of Scripture. You're in Romans 5. I'm reading to you. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only unique son. John 6, 51, I am the living bread which comes down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Galatians 1.4, he gave himself, speaking of Christ, for our sins. Galatians 2.20, the life that I now live in, 
in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, this, this is what love does. It gives, it pours out. Look at Romans 5 and verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Notice again, he didn't, he didn't set his affection on people who were lovely. He was not compelled to come to us because we warranted his giving of his life. No, we were helpless, we were ungodly, and yet he died for us, verse eight. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. Well, of course he did. <laughs> I mean, you know me, of course he did. No, he says God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, we weren't righteous, we hadn't gotten our act together. Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we'll be saved by his life. And not only this, we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. God reconciled us to himself by making him who knew no sin, sin on our behalf, that we might, what, become the righteousness of God in him. And we were drawn and reconciled and brought into his family, unlovely as we were. You see, this is what is so foundational to Christian life and what you've gotta walk out of here with. You've gotta anchor this in your mind that biblical love is, is directed at the well-being of the object of our love and it is expressed in serving and in sacrifice and in giving. It is, you could put it this way, it is to live with a burden for the good of others. You're just burdened for the good of others and good being defined by what? Your knowledge and your discernment, the Bible. And love just gives and gives and gives and gives and it is willing to incur the greatest of cost for the greatest of ends. Beloved, the symbol of love does not come in a heart, but in the shape of a cross. Valentine's Day is coming and they will try to convince you all over again that it is something that it is not. Love comes with a cross. And if you're in Christ, you have denied yourself. You're no longer serving yourself. You have taken up your cross. And you are following in the path of this perfect God-man who emptied himself on your behalf, who poured out his life unto death, that you might have life, that you might come to life and be drawn out of enslavement to sin and brought, brought into the glorious relationship of fellowship with God, life eternal, the life of God in you, joy and love and peace and all the, the glorious things that we know because of what Christ did for us. How can we not live like that? have the attitude of the Apostle Paul who said he endeavored to spend and even be expended if that's what it took on behalf of the, of the Colossians or the, the Corinthians. Have, a, have, a, have an endeavor in your life to have a life committed to expending yourself for the sake of others and for the glory of God just like Jesus. And if you want to grow in love, you must study to understand and seek to meditate upon and relish the love of Christ for you. And that's what we come to do this morning. And I would encourage you in, a, in, a, in the few moments that are quiet here as the elements are being passed, just examine your life in light of love. Am I one who has died to self and who lives sacrificially for the needs of others. That's my greatest desire is to bring them good in their lives. Let's have some men come forward and our Lord and our Savior, how we like Peter would in sincerity of heart declare our love for you only to find how weak we really are, how selfish 
we still are, how bound to protecting ourselves rather than expending ourselves. And yet, Lord, even with Peter, we see your grace and mercy as you three times address the issue with him about the nature of his love. And Lord, he cast himself on you and your forgiveness was full and you gave him a great privilege and responsibility in shepherding your flock under your leadership. And Lord, we realize that you don't give up on sinners. You forgive us when we come to you in faith and repentance. And Lord, we pray for any this morning who don't know you that you might tenderly lead them to faith in Christ. And Lord, for my brothers and sisters here, it's with full hearts, grateful hearts, that we acknowledge, Lord, that you have placed that seed of love, your love within our hearts, and we long, along with the Apostle Paul, that we might grow and abound still more and more. Forgive us, Lord, for looking to ourselves, for seeking self, for seeking to be noticed or to be appreciated. Forgive us for withholding when others are in need. Lord, we pray instead that we might abound like the Apostle Paul to a place where we would have a heart to spend and be expended on one another's behalf. What a glorious thing the church is. What a privilege, what a blessing. What a joy it is to us, Lord, to be here and to be in one another's midst. We do pray that you would bless our time together and we thank you for the food that you've provided for us. We ask God that you would strengthen us and more importantly, strengthen our fellowship one with the other in Christ in whose name we pray, amen.